Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host, Annie Sipukaya. New Books in Sociology is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore. Today, I'm going to talk to George E. Valiant, author of Triumphs of Experience, The Men of the Harvard Grant Study, published by Belknap Press in 2012. George Valiant is a psychiatrist and professor at Harvard Medical School and has been involved in the grant study since 1966. The grant study began in 1938 and has tracked the physical and emotional health of over 200 men, starting with their college days and following them well into their 90s. In this interview, Dr. Valiant shares some of the findings of this study. From the detrimental effects of alcoholism, to the supportive effect of warm childhoods, and the importance of relationships to healthy aging. Good morning, Dr. Valiant. Good morning. Today we are talking to you about your book, Triumphs of Experience, The Men of the Harvard Grant Study. To begin with, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this study? Sure. Um, My background is that I've been fascinated by long-term follow-up. I first studied um, schizophrenics who recovered and then heroin addicts who recovered and I uh, asked if Harvard had any such data and they told me that they had the grant study, the study of adult development that had been running for 25 years and I uh, at first was disappointed, what could you find out about normals? But as soon as I started reading their lives, it was like getting into a Tolstoy uh, novel, and each man's life was a page-turner, not uh, a bland story of normality. And I kept going for 40 years, and I'm still turning the pages. So this is a study that started in the 30s? It started in 1939 by W.T. Grant, who was the Sam Walton of his day, and he was interested in uh, physical and mental health, which was a very novel idea then, uh, 60 years before positive psychology. And uh, what interested him personally was uh, leadership and how to pick good managers but he also was interested in supporting his patient who was the head of, um, I mean, sorry, his doctor, who was the head of um, Harvard Health Services. And the head of Harvard Health Services had studied um, aeronautical um, high, high, high mountain exercise, and therefore he was interested in positive physical health, which was a totally novel idea. I mean, he he invented the step test, uh, for example, mm. 
to test normal function. So, so the idea was to find out what you could study by studying both mentally and uh, physically uh, men deliberately chosen for uh, health, but to follow them over a very long period of time. So that was the original. Um, that, that was the, the that was the goal, the and after five years, the uh, grant foundation uh, pulled out, and since then it's been supported at first by little sc scraps until I took over in the late sixties and got uh, National Institute of Health, which has supported it ever since. I see. One of the, the things that I found really interesting was your account of the interviews that you did with the study subjects when you first joined the study in the 60s, but they had been in it already for 25 years. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about those first interviews? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it became clear as I followed the men that uh, – the first task of adult development is intimacy, and the second uh, step is career consolidation, which is being a little bit uh, self-centered and a little bit wet behind the ears while you establish a career, and then uh, following that generativity where you become generous in giving to um, others and also more aware of your own emotions. So that I was very much uh, a wet behind the ears, 33-year-old, uh, interviewing these distinguished 47-year-olds who were terribly generous and open with me. But when they talked about depression, which was perfectly normal concerns, uh, I wrote them up as if they were depressed because the idea of listening to men openly talk about their emotions uh, isn't what 33-year-olds uh, trying for a law partnership or tenure at a university or two more telephones at their desk uh, usually engage in. Oh, I see. Um, so you, you kind of came into the study with, with your own um, biases as well. Well, they weren't biases. I just was a child. <laughs> I had to grow up with with the men by following them for 40 years. And then in retrospect, I mean, I didn't uh, think, uh, I mean, they weren't biases. They were just the butterflies and caterpillars of very different people. I see. Um, you say at some point in your book, you said, however they may try, people can never neutralize their personalities. Uh, oh, dear. Do you still uh, think that's true? <laughs> well, I think this is a tough one because one of the major findings of the book was that William James was wrong when he said character is set in plastic, in, in plaster at age 30. And it was clear that these men changed dramatically over time. It's also true that from 20 to 60, maybe longer, the brain continues to mature so that just as a caterpillar and a butterfly are the same person, they have changed dramatically due to physical maturational problems, uh, let alone the effects of environment. Uh, so that 
uh, I think when I said personality can't change, I maybe was um, misspeaking, or I need to le- see the sentences before and after. I think I think um, sure. people uh, do change, but uh, when we go to um, our fiftieth um, reunion, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said. Uh, when we looked around, we were still the same uh, boys that we'd known in college. But the the fact was that they, uh, as can be documented by the changes in the man during the study, is that they weren't the same people. That at 50, uh, we don't look exactly the way we did when we were 20. Right. Um, so, so what are some of the main um, changes that people kind of went through as they matured? Uh, the main uh, changes was the um, what Erickson called the widening social radius, that the first mm-hmm. step a young man or young woman has to make is a commitment to another person. And the next step, usually in order, but not always, is a commitment to a career so that you are struggling whether to be a ballet dancer or a neurosurgeon, and uh, around 30, the rubber meets the road, and you've got to decide. And the next step is that it's not all about you, that other people matter, and that um, you've spent up to age 40 developing who you are, and it's now your job to start giving it away, but the person who is generative in their 40s and 50s still um, sits at the head of the class as the teacher or the father of the family or mother of the family as the matriarch, and uh, you have some control. Uh, when you get to be uh, 65 and 70, you become a... Um, Cultural guardian, and it's your job to make sure that things don't change too fast and the children remember uh, the days of their grandparents. So, a lovely example is Henry Ford going from as a, a generative tycoon changing the face of America uh, with the automobile spending his declining years building Greenfield Museum, which was bringing back the country roads and horse and buggies and gasoline lights that uh, he'd help extinguish. Interesting. Uh, You talk a lot about adaptive coping and how important that is to the health health of the, uh, the, the subjects. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what adaptive coping is? Yeah, uh, it's terribly important, and it's gotten continuing um, bad press since 1960, ever since uh, Freud became a subject for political uh, derision. And um, (laughs) so that Freud called them defensive mechanisms. Actually, they're involuntary ways of coping that help you, um, what 
Walter Buchanan called homeostasis. It helps you write yourself when everything around you uh, is topsy-turvy. And these responses aren't um, conscious any more than when you sneeze or catch your balance. It's um, conscious, conscious, they're involuntary. And uh, modern cognitive psychologists don't like things that are involuntary, so they say, oh, this is just uh, Freudian hocus-pocus, rather than taking <laughs> a real interest. So they, the social sciences keep rediscover, discovering these um, processes by calling words or grit uh, and hardiness, uh, or a um, famous one was Michel offering, Walter Michel, um, telling a child they could have uh, eat the marshmallow in front of them or if they waited for 15 minutes, he'd give them two marshmallows. And clearly that's measuring the ability to uh, suppress, but it's not something that you can tell a teenage delinquent uh, count to 10 before you punch the nice policeman. So the um, <laughs> teenage delinquent does what feels absolutely wonderful at the time he hauls off and punches the nice policeman, which is kind of like Britney Spears' Saturday night. It feels great at the time. Um, right. But you're in big trouble afterwards. Mm-hmm. And self-restraint, involuntary self-restraint is important. Where it becomes much more interesting is the kind of humor that you see in an AA group where people are remembering perfectly traumatic things and everybody in the room is cracking up and relieving their tension and not having to take uh, clonopin, where um, if you don't have humor, you suffer with tension and need to find some way of... Um, self-medication or another example would be you have a really lousy uh, childhood like um, Beethoven and then you get death and when you're getting death said you were going to commit suicide so you've got 50 to 5 year old Beethoven suicidal angry without any friends having the bright idea that he would put Schiller's Ode to Joy to music and uh is beloved by the entire Vienna Opera House by saying somewhere beyond the clouds lives a loving father. Now that's fancy footwork and most of us can't do it, but it was enormously comforting to Beethoven and saved his life, so you'd color that sublimation. Another um, simple course is you grow up as a um, abused child and when you grow up, you can again do what feels good, which is revenge and retaliation and abuse other children. Now you're in power. Or you can set up a home for um, abused children or um, abused mothers and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And the point is, when you think about yourself, when your involuntary coping mechanisms are narcissistic, um, the outcome is lousy. 
I mean, hate, fear, lust um, are instinctive, and they all feel good to release, but they're very selfish. And defenses like altruism and sublimation and stoicism waiting for the two marshmallows um, and humor are um, considering the other person and are like the positive emotions uh, that you, you, you can't be forgiving or grateful or loving uh, by yourself. Uh, happiness is about yourself. Uh, joy is about connection. So it, it makes a tremendous difference in well-being uh, what your style of uh, coping is. It's involuntary, but it makes an enormous difference whether people like you or not. I mean, Mandela is just a lovely example of someone who goes down in life as a hero, and uh, Hitler is not going to fare quite as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if adaptive coping is involuntary, though, does that mean that people have no control over it, that they can't work on it? Well, this is what Marty Seligman uh, is. Marty Seligman and I uh, were at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences together, and I was working on these mechanisms, which seemed to me almost like a gift from God. And uh, Marty was trying to figure out how you change behavior again through uh, cognitive means. And when he came up with positive psychology, um, he's worked hard at how you allow people to shift from negative to positive emotions. And Mm -hmm. uh, one way to do it is meditation that and the point is it has a calming effect on what's called the parasympathetic nervous system the part of you that um, lets you eat and digest and sleep when you're safe and it meditation takes you away from the monkey brain which is the sympathetic nervous system which has uh, seahawk fight songs and uh, is all about uh, triumphing and defending yourself against uh, lions and whoever else you don't like. Uh, And um, another way of having the same effect on the parasympathetic nervous system is to shift from anger and lust and hunger and fear, all of which activate the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, which is good in a crisis, but if you do it chronically, uh, you get depressed and you can develop diabetes and hypertension and all those bad things. And uh, rather than do that, uh, you get yourself a puppy or a sweetie or a one-year-old baby to pay pat cake with, and suddenly... Uh, <laughs> you uh, feel um, safe. But the big problem 
is if you let yourself feel safe, that means you're putting yourself in danger and you're vulnerable. So that in mm-hmm. modern psychology, when you say love or joy or gratitude, uh, you know, that person needs more analysis and to find out more things that they're resentful of and that love is a four-letter word and only leads to heartbreak. And if you get joyful, the axe is going to fall and Icarus is going to fall to the ground. And, and so that we um, defensively um, protect ourselves by being wary of too much positive emotion that you go to sleep uh, on a lovely sunny day on uh, Savannah after a good meal. And if a lion comes, you're in deep trouble. Right. Right. So, so, so that's yeah, that the, yeah. that's, that's the tension and the social sciences are largely, um, taking a defensive mode and worry about anxiety and terror, terrorism and depression and, um, Britney Spears acting out and kind of forget about people like Mandela and Mark Twain and Mother Teresa that dealt with enormous difficulties in uh, much more socially acceptable ways. Mm-hmm. But until you, so you decide, I, I just had, yeah. what'd you say? I, I, I just no, no, had I'm, a friend. Oh, God, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Uh, I just had a friend who got married when he was 41 and said until then he had a positive allergy to marriage. How on earth could you make a <laughs> commitment to love when there were three and a half billion women out there uh, just waiting for you? And, and Right. <laughs> he's happier now, but... Uh, he didn't feel that way at 35. It was too dangerous to make that commitment. I mean, and this is this is part of the this is why personalities change. Right. So, in a way, vulnerability is kind of at the heart of of this this question of of um, of, of happiness of letting down defenses. Uh, I think so, but I, I again remember happiness is drive reduction. You feel good after satisfying uh, hunger, lust, or anger. But it doesn't last. Uh, joy is connection, which is much scarier. It's much scarier to hold someone's mm-hmm. hand than to watch a pornographic movie. Right. One is in a brown That's paper a really envelope in the safety of your own bedroom and uh, leads to happiness if you had to press the beeper right now, but it doesn't lead to survival. And uh, the connection of joy, while, you know, is putting yourself out there, is Mm -hmm. um, reaching out and holding someone else's hand. Right. In fact, you talk about uh, something that kind of relates to this difference between privation and deprivation, um, and that uh, 
you know, having uh, loved people and lost them is actually very different from never having loved anyone. Absolutely. And this was, I mean, Michael Rudder gets um, credit for discovering this, but it wasn't, um, I mean, it was um, counterintuitive. Uh, and I was certainly raised as a psychiatrist that because loss was so painful, uh, it wasn't until I started reading people like Tolstoy uh, that uh, you get a sense of that you can't uh, feel uh, deprived if you haven't uh, been loved and loved in return uh, first. Mm -hmm. So Shakespeare was right after all? Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? Yes. Shakespeare's exactly. always right. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Um, you talked a little bit about marriage before. Um, how does marriage affect the lives of, well, at least in this study, how did marriage affect the lives of these men? Well, I mean, uh, uh, to start out, every marriage is uh, different. And uh, mm -hmm. that the skill to have a 50-year marriage and still enjoy it at the end of 50 years leads to enormous contentment that is a very good, probably as good a prescription as uh, Aristotle had for um, the well-lived life. The um, interesting thing about the study is that whereas Divorce is terribly unstable. So if you look at divorced people over 10 years, you think, you know, this is pretty close to mental illness. And yet, <laughs> at the end of 50 years, uh, just as many divorced men had established long-term, uh, decade-plus marriages that were enormously enjoyable, and about one-third of the people married for 50 years uh, were still kind of hanging on for grim life, as one man put it. Our marriage is held together by decision, not by desire. And, and so that um, it's... <laughs> and, and this is partly because personalities change. Uh, and the other um, point why divorce isn't as bad as uh, I certainly thought it was at 35 uh, is, is that 57% of the grant study marriages had alcoholism in one member or the other, which is just mm -hmm. a fantastic, you know, even though it's a small sample, that's huge and the reason that we're not sociologists and people who study marriage aren't aware of this is that alcoholism is often called depression but the alcoholism came first or uh, it's simply looked at as a good man's failing and nice people don't talk about alcoholism or uh, mm -hmm. in the case of women a gentleman doesn't call his wife a drunk. So for identifying alcoholism in the men's wives, uh, 
often took until they were 65 before it came out. Wow. So I guess that really shows the importance of longitudinal studies and studies that are really, really longitudinal because if you had stopped even 20 or 30 years before, you wouldn't have had that result. This is, thank you very much for bringing that point out. And NIH funding offices, listen carefully, because I really did find <laughs> things out in the last 25 years of the study that were been absolutely invisible beforehand. For example, I um, um just about to do an interview with someone who's horrified that in AA there is something called 13th stepping, which is basically sleeping with someone that you're sponsoring, which is about the same order of destructiveness, um, although at least it's with a consenting adult, uh, than pedophilia in the Catholic Church. And people who are shocked by this sort of want to close AA down and call it a cult, uh, just as there are people that want to close down the Catholic Church. And yet, if you do a 50, or in the case of the Catholic Church, a 2,000-year study, uh, while it's caused an enormous amount of harm, uh, it does more good than harm. And AA, at present, is the most successful treatment we have for alcoholism. But nobody that does two-year follow-up studies believes that. And yet, my data on both inner-city men and Harvard men after 50 years is absolutely incontrovertible. Hmm. So, uh, so talk a little bit about AA, because you've had a long relationship with um, with that organization, even though you're not an alcoholic. Um, can yeah, you talk a little I mean, bit about your involvement? Well, I mean, it's it's been a uh, fair. I, I came into AA having been in medicine for 10 years and knowing I was absolutely helpless over alcoholism in my patients and knew that everyone else was too and uh, joined, became the co-director of an alcohol program where I was made kicking and screaming to go to an AA meeting every month. And after uh, two or three years, I took the cotton out of my mouth and, I mean, out of my ears and put it in my mouth and listened. And I had a research grant to study uh, alcoholism and I knew about longitudinal studies and medical evidence and that uh, you couldn't trust uh, what a drunk said. You had to see what a drunk did. And uh, the one basis of the study was by looking at what drunks did. You didn't come away like most sociologists uh, just asking someone how much and how often they drunk because a lot of alcoholics are on diets, just like Oprah Winfrey and Elizabeth Taylor. But that doesn't mean... They're not overweight if you put them on a scale. So you don't believe what people say. You follow what they do. And when you follow what they do, you find that people can return to social drinking for two or three years sometimes, or at least covered up. Mm-hmm. And so it's fashionable to think that absence is a puritanical cure. And yet by 
following alcoholics for 50 years, you find out at the end of the day, the only ones that are sober are the ones that have practiced total abstinence, just like your cigarette-smoking friends who, um, as Mark Twain said, I found stopping smoking so easy I've done it 20 times. But return to social smoking isn't what a two-pack-a-day camel smoker needs to hear. And um, so that, but at the same time, by going to the meetings and trying to see how these programs worked, uh, one of the slogans in AI is an, maintain an attitude of gratitude and fake it till you make it. Now, I'm a psychoanalyst, and I know that's absolute rubbish, and it couldn't <laughs> possibly do anybody any good, and it's called the river in Egypt, and it's denial, and you should stamp it out and let people realize how resentful they are and get you $100 or $200 an hour for listening to their resentments. And at the end of the day, the college man had 25 100 hours of psychotherapy, 200 hours apiece on average, and only one got sober. And yet the people that um, went to these AA meetings where everybody laughed and practiced, um, you know, and laughed at their own misery uh, and realized that resentments were bad news and that gratitude was uh, healing. Uh, they got sober. Hmm. So, I mean, and it was hard. Yeah. I mean, it was hard not to be in that atmosphere and not um, fall in love with the program. Hmm. Do you think it's it's partly the community of the AA that, that makes it um, easier for people to totally. stay sober? Totally. That hmm. You can only have positive emotions in relationship. Mm -hmm. I can drink um, my uh, two jiggers of scotch um, by myself in perfect peace and uh, happiness, but then it's gone, and what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And uh, the point about an AA group is that you're part of it, and you're all striving for the same thing, and it's it's it's... I mean, an AA group is much more powerful, say, than a women's um, support group because with AA, you know the alternative is death. And um, the um, breaking away from a women's group simply means you can go back to watching your favorite uh, soap opera in the evening. I mean, um, there are the same costs involved yeah. in the group membership. With alcoholism, one of the, the things that you found in your study is that alcoholism is actually a cause of a lot of problems and not the result of problems. Yes, that, um, that, that, that is, that's, that's um, you know, <laughs> probably the biggest uh, heresy. That's a little bit like Galileo telling the Catholics they were wrong about the orbit of the sun. Uh, every sociologist knows that unhappy childhoods cause alcoholism, 
and every psychiatrist knows that depression leads to alcoholism. And yet when you follow the whole lifetime through, you find the reason that unhappy childhoods lead to alcoholism is that their mother or their father was a drunk, which led to an unhappy childhood. And um, if there wasn't any family history of alcoholism, but the mother married a drunken alcoholic or a sociopath, the childhood was terrible, but it didn't lead to alcoholism. And in the same way with depression, the guy is drunkenly complains to, I mean, depressedly complains to his psychiatrist that he's uh, suicidal because his wife ran off with his best friend and that's why he's drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels a day and the psychiatrist gives him antidepressants and never thinks to ask hey before your wife ran off with your best friend did she sometimes used to complain about your drinking <laughs> and it's that it's it's that cart horse that makes it so important to follow people forward. It's, it's, I mean, we had it in baby books. I mean, Ben Spock taught us that, but you only need a 20 year follow up to study child and young adult development. And what's really unique about the grant study is that it endured and got funded uh, for 75 years. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, so, does that imply that, that really alcoholism is? sort of purely genetic, or does it not really imply that? No, I mean, nothing, you know, I mean, identical twins uh, can turn out very uh, differently. It means that as far as unhappy childhoods being related to alcoholism, it's genetic. But uh, you also are much more likely to drink uh, alcoholically if your spouse or your fraternity mates promote alcoholism so that mm-hmm. in Italian football soccer stadiums the uh, fans have been allowed to drink since they were 10 but they know if they come home drunk from the game their father will throw them downstairs whereas the kids from Liverpool have been forbidden to drink till they were 21 and they know if they come home drunk from the game their dad will uh, embrace them as uh, a real guy and that mm-hmm. kind of social support for don't teach people how to drive but give them a Maserati is <laughs> car crashing producing and teaching people carefully how to drive and giving them a car that won't go much over 80 miles an hour is um, helps prevent accidents. So a culture that tolerates and even kind of encourages drinking makes it worse, makes alcoholism well, worse. No, it encourages drunkenness. That northern cultures, right. it's cool to get drunk, but it's forbidden yeah. to drink. In Italy, and I mean, France is halfway between. The French let you drink young, but they don't have any uh, limits on how much you drink, uh, although it mm-hmm. helps if it's wine rather than vodka. So that France is, is, is somewhere um, in between. The, the Portuguese, um, who until very recently, didn't recognize alcoholism as a disease, so that they had the highest alcohol consumption in the world. I mean, you've got to realize that once you lose control of alcohol, it's very serious, and it's not just cute. 
which your barmaids may think it, uh, your barmaids uh, and maids may think is too. And you see that all over the place, especially in colleges and stuff like that. I remember when I was in college, it was was very cool to drink. Too much. You talk a little bit of, yeah, exactly. Getting wasted was, you know, an activity. You talk a little bit about the uh, sleeper effects of childhood. Um, Could you sort of explain what a sleeper effect is? Yeah, um, a sleeper effect is something, a variable that doesn't seem to be very important at one age, and then at a later age turns out to be uh, very important. And uh, to me, the most interesting uh, effect was the men's relationship with their mothers, which being a good kosher psychoanalyst, I was brought up to believe that... um, Mom was terribly important, and when she didn't appear to be related so much to mental health when the men were 30 and 40, uh, I, I was very puzzled. And then at the end of the day, um, mothers and having something called a well-integrated personality uh, seemed to be terribly important. And um, the effect of mothering... Of, of warm mothering is a little bit like um, Alexander and Sigmund Freud's mothers who adored their sons, and it may not have been it made much difference when they were uh, in their 30s. Well, it did for Alexander because he grew up faster than most of us. But um, and and yet at the end of the day, uh, was was very important in um, permitting achievement, where, again, paradoxically, the importance of being close to your father uh, showed up as good relationships with your wife and um, friendships rather than success in your career. And, and I don't have any explanation for that, and you can dismiss it as a small study, and it's just men. So I'm, I'm not uh, suggesting that that's gospel, but our findings was that being close to your father is more important to your relationships, and being close to your mother is more important to your uh, IQ and your uh, occupational um, achievement. Oh, that is interesting. Um, was was there any study of uh, siblings at all in this study, or no? Uh, that's no. Uh, well, in in ways that are too um, small to tell you. The one thing that was clear is that men who were close to their siblings, were close to at least one sibling, uh, had less depression in adult life to a dramatic degree than people that never were close to a sibling. Mm. So this, this idea it's of, important of, to be close to your yeah. sibling, but, but the siblings themselves, uh, it was enough trouble to keep track of 268 uh, moving targets <laughs> for 75 years without uh, adding any more. Right, right. Um, this idea of, of closeness, of warmth, um, seems to be sort of uh, a central part of your uh, of the fi- of the findings of the study. 
uh, that warmth is actually extremely important to uh, joy, and particularly a warm childhood. Um, well, I mean, I just think well, then you just have to think of kittens and puppies, and right. whatever that does, that's got nothing to do with eros. It's got nothing to do with libido. It's got entirely to do with uh, reciprocity and caring. A uh, little child cares more about giving the kitten milk than they do about uh, getting an Oreo for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in that sense, the New Testament was on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um in the last chapter of your book, you talk about some of the surprising findings of the study, including those things that you thought were, were going to go one way and didn't, like uh, differences between Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. Uh, so, Or uh, religion and health, for example. Yeah. So what did you find that, that was surprising in those cases? Well, but, I mean, I started out uh, the study uh, thinking that all uh, Republicans and all businessmen were going to go to hell and that the only people who were going to go to heaven were the uh, liberals and the uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors that were psychologically minded. Uh, it turns out that... Uh, with Republicans and Democrats, it's a tie. There's, there's no difference. But uh, businessmen were better dads and uh, mentally healthier and uh, better husbands than the uh, psychologically-minded folk like uh, me. Really? That is an interesting finding. Uh, what about in terms of religion and health? Well, that's, um, I mean, again, that's absolute heresy. And there's, when I tried to publish this as a paper, there were reviewers that just called me the Antichrist and didn't I read the literature. And um, the reason that religion is good for your physical health, I mean, religion is fine for your mental health because it's all involved in those positive emotions I was talking about. But the reason that religion is good for your physical health is a lot of religions uh, discourage drinking and smoking. And the studies that show that religion is good for your health are largely done in places like the South and among Seventh-day Adventists and um, Mormons. And the people that don't find a relationship between religion and health are places like uh, the Grant Study and England, where uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans and Irish Catholics are just as good at uh, drinking and smoking as the guy next door. Um, And the other failing is that the studies that show religion is good for your health ask about alcoholism as how much do you drink and how often, which is like asking Oprah Winfrey, how much do you eat and how often? Mm-hmm. And you can't believe why she is sometimes overweight and the guy that strokes 
the Yale crew, uh, who eats, admits to eating three times as much as uh, Oprah, but never goes on the diet, um, mm-hmm. is um, thin and, and fit. You have to put people with weight problems on a scale, and you don't ask an alcoholic. I mean, if you ask an alcoholic, have you ever gone on the wagon, that's a um, bad sign. Mm. It's like, have you ever gone on a diet? Right. Right. Not not reliable answers. It's, well, it's, 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 it, it is a reliable answer because if you've gone on a diet, it means you've had a problem with your weight. So you, right. um, that's a clue that you're dealing with a problem. And again, you're out to ask um, the guy whose wife left him, uh, did you have a drinking problem when your wife left you? You ask him, mm-hmm. did your wife nag you about your drinking? You, you put right. it in um, terms that are um, don't sound pejorative, but that's evidence that he had a drinking problem then. Right. So if people want to know more about this, uh, this study, um, is this book out in, in most bookstores? Um, how can people find more information? I'm too sweet. Uh, it's uh, on Amazon. It's in most um, big um, bookstores. It's not yet out in um, paperback. Uh, and you can't find it in the airports. So the simplest way to get it uh, and the cheapest way to get it is to just call your friendly Amazon website and they will get it to you in three days with my gratitude. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Dr. Valiant, thank you very much for talking with us today. Well, thank you very much for letting me do it. (laughs) And you asked very good questions. Thanks. You have been listening to an interview with George E. Valiant, author of Triumphs of Experience, The Men of the Harvard Grant Study, published by Belknap Press in 2012. This is your host, Annie Sibukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.